Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with evangelical Christian innovator Shane Claiborne and Ambassador Omar Saif Gobash of the United Arab Emirates. There is a shorter produced version of this, as always, wherever you found this podcast. It is time to please take our seats and to silence our cell phones. I'm told we're to leave them on, but just silent, please. And also, please, no flash photography. I am Rabbi Jill Maderer, and it is a joy to welcome you to Congregation Road of Shalom. As we as a community right now are in mourning in the wake of the synagogue shooting near San Diego, and in the wake of attacks in Sri Lanka, New Zealand, and in the wake of church burnings, I look at you, Interfaith Philadelphia, and I find faith. And I think of the work of Krista Tippett, and I find hope. In lifting up the values we have been learning from civil conversations and in the practice of on being, we acknowledge that the land Rod of Shalom sits on is Lene Lenape land. It has been a powerful year, engaging in smaller groups in the civil conversations work. Now that we are all together, let's please be sure to be among community. Please take this moment to find someone new to greet as you turn around. Thank you. It's a friendly group. All right, you're all taking to our custom here at Rudder Shalom very naturally. Wonderful, thank you. All right. <laughs> Husna Hashim is the 2017 to 2018 Youth Poet Laureate of Philadelphia 
and author of the poetry collection, Honey Sequence. During high school, she served as a student group leader for Interfaith Philadelphia's Walking the Walk Youth Initiative. And she was one of the 2018 recipients of Interfaith Philadelphia's Dare to Understand Award. Welcome to Husna. This city, my city, after Fatima Asghar. A white woman speaks to me. Who are your people? Where are you from? West Philly, I reply. Where are you from? I am African American. I mean your ancestry. Where are you really from? I do not know. You do not know? I do not know. I do know this city, my city, that when I open my eyes and look at my people, I see a hurricane. I ask her, how do you quiet storm? How do you secret everlasting strength? These are my people and I find them on the street in shadow. One, Uncle Khalid's molar teeth gnaw on miswak on the MFL train platform in his good Nikes and black thobe at Asr prayer time. Two, Aya sucks all of the Cheetos dust off of her fingers, one at a time beneath the Ramadan moon. Three, Belal, the reincarnated Mu'adhin of the fourth floor of the middle school, rides his bike down Parkside Avenue with his friends, but only on the back wheel. Allah dog tags around necks in starched white tees, shape-ups in hair grease. Four, Angela drives the 10 trolley west. Her voice greets me, salam. And if Shahid becomes a prefix to my name, ya Allah, my Allah, let them catch me too. Mid-breath, glasses off, magnolia blossom in hand, the petals falling as snowflakes the dissonance of gold and silver. Please let them remember me as more than this not knowing. Let them remember me as I remember them, more than an exotic fish in or outside of water. We are an entire storm, this fully formed black Muslim West Philadelphia, a jagged clawed thing bearing its teeth tenderly. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Jesse Garner, and on behalf of Interfaith Philadelphia, I want to thank you all for being here, and to thank Husna for sharing with us her poem, This City, My City. For thanks to William Penn, This City, Our City is a city of many voices. And celebrating the diversity of those voices is what our organization is all about. Interfaith Philadelphia was founded 15 years ago in the aftermath of the terrible events of September the 11th in a climate too often characterized by a fear and suspicion of differences and especially of religious differences. 
In our work, we seek to counter that fear by building relationships. Relationships of dialogue and understanding among both individuals and communities in a variety of ways. By leading immersive interfaith experiences, facilitating workshops and training programs, and convening groups of community leaders in this region. I would encourage you all to visit our website, interfaithphiladelphia.org, to learn more about this critically important work. And tonight, pick up one of our Passports to Understanding to assist you in your own interfaith journey. Each year, Interfaith Philadelphia recognizes individuals and organizations who have contributed in an exemplary way to furthering interfaith understanding with our annual Dare to Understand Award, which was presented last night at the Philadelphia Episcopal Cathedral to Krista Tippett for her work on the On Being project. Tonight's program represents the culmination of our year of civil conversations here in Philadelphia, an effort that was directly inspired by Krista and her work and which has enlisted hundreds of you in an attempt to model what such interactions can look like in our daily lives. So that in Krista's words, by speaking together differently, we might learn to live together differently. Finally, I would like to express our sincerest appreciation and deep gratitude to the John Templeton Foundation, the premier sponsor of this evening's program. And now to introduce Krista Tippett and her guest, here is Heather Templeton Dill, the current president of the foundation and herself, the granddaughter of the legendary investor and philanthropist, Sir John Templeton. Heather. Good evening. Thank you, Reverend Garner, for your kind introduction. And thank you, Husna, for your deeply meaningful poem. And thank you to Interfaith Philadelphia for inviting On Being to Philadelphia. I am honored to be the one to introduce Krista Tippett, the host of On Being. Her program is a great partner to my organization, the John Templeton Foundation. We fund academic research, but we are also interested in encouraging public awareness and discussion of, that, of the research that we fund. The origins of the John Templeton Foundation lay in Sir John Templeton's vision that religion and spirituality are an important and an exceedingly relevant aspect of human existence. We fund scholars who are trying to make sense of that spiritual and religious impulse through psychology, neuroscience, cosmology, anthropology, philosophy, theology, and many other disciplines. Krista Tippett brings ideas such as these to life through her radio show and her podcast, and she has hosted a number of our grantees, including Dr. Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist at NYU, David Steindl Rost on gratitude, Dr. Brian Green, a physicist at Columbia University, 
Brother Guy Casalmango from Vatican Observatory, Dr. Michael McCullough speaking on some of the research we have funded on forgiveness, and she has also hosted the 2019 Templeton Prize Laureate, Dr. Marcelo Gleiser, who is an astronomer and physicist at Dartmouth College. She is a master at making cutting-edge academic research compelling and understandable. And she does so in a way that moves the spirit and inspires the soul to help us think and to live differently. And that's why I'm thrilled to introduce the On Being program tonight. On Being has been a nationally syndicated program of American public media since 2003. Krista Tippett created the program and has served as its host since its inception. She has received many awards, including the Peabody Award and the National Humanities Medal. For her ability to engage in conversations about what we at the John Templeton Foundation call the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. On Being describes their mission in this way, pursuing deep thinking and social courage, moral imaginations and joy to renew inner life, outer life, and life together. I believe you will experience all of these in tonight's conversation. And while I assume that most of you are faithful participants in the On Being project, I encourage you to explore On Being's new website where you can find 15 years of content that's searchable by topic and organized in a way that is easy to navigate and spiritually engaging. Consider On Being's website as a way to extend tonight's conversation. And now, please join me in welcoming Krista Tippett, who will introduce her guests and tonight's program. Hello. It's so great to be in Philadelphia. Um, we, of course, have a longtime partner in WHYY Philadelphia, which I always want to call out as one of, yeah. And, and you may or may not know, you may know it if you've been getting up at 7 o'clock Sunday morning for a long time, that they were one of the first public radio stations. This was a very scary idea 15 years ago. Could you put something called speaking of faith? Could you put these ideas and these perspectives, not only on the radio, but on public radio? And, uh, and they were really one of the very first stations that said yes. And uh, we've, we've always just felt such a great, um, great engagement and, and, and friendship with this community. And then the John Templeton Foundation has also been a friend and partner um, for many of these 15 years. And uh, I, I learned last night that uh, the John Templeton Foundation uh, in part uh, funded the research that led to all of us in this room being the first generation of our species to see a picture of a black hole. Uh, yeah. I always, always think about the many ways we need to tell the story of our time to each other. And there's a lot to be concerned about, and then there's something like that which is majestic, and we also need to take that in when it happens. 
And then we have this new beautiful partnership with Interfaith Philadelphia. Um, and I, ha- I have been learning these last few days how Interfaith Philadelphia, in the course of a year, has taken the work we've been doing and turned it into something completely new and given it a new life. And uh, it's absolutely thrilling for me and my colleagues who are here tonight. Um, and what I look forward to is I'm filled with gratitude and I see us now, I see us, I see us in a, being in a position to learn from you and to continue to walk alongside you as, as you walk forward with what you've begun to create. Um, and I want to thank, just briefly, I could thank everybody, but a- Abby, Amanda, and Nicole, at Interfaith Philadelphia. Um, we're going to do a little experiment here for a couple of minutes. This is the part where I'm supposed to tell you to turn off your cell phones. Um, but we, um, one of the things we're trying to, as we as we form the On Being Project, which is which is an independent project, and a lot is happening. As he- I really appreciate Heather you calling out the website because that was a labor of love over the last year, um, and we want to get more. We've our audience, we don't use the word audience very much. I mean, there are ways in which you have to measure an audience. But we, we experience our, audi- our listening audience as a community. And part of what we want to do is figure out how to meet that um, as we move forward. So we, but we're not Facebook, so we're going to ask your permission to engage you at another level. Um, <laughs> and we have an experiment to try that before that if you, if you get out your phone, you can text a phone number in a second. And I'm going to tell you how to do that. And this will immediately um, subscribe you to our Saturday morning newsletter, which is also fairly new. And if you haven't experienced it, it is absolutely beautiful. It's this contemplative moment on a Saturday morning. And it will also keep you up to date on all the things we're doing, and, and including live events like this. So... All right, so text the word email to 215-515-6355. 215-515-6355. Text email. Something should happen. <laughs> I'm not sure what. Um, Lily, do you have any? Is it working? Okay. Yeah. 215-515-6355. And as soon as that works, you can now put your phones away and turn off the ringer. So a little bit about how this is going to go tonight. Thank you for indulging me. Um, uh, we're going to speak up here for about 45 minutes, and then we will open it up to you, I believe. Are there questions? Are there cards on the seat in the program, and so um, in about half an hour, I'll invite you, if you have a question, to write it down. It will be collected. And so we'll speak up here, we'll open it up to the room, and then we'll come back up here for the last 10 or 15 minutes uh, to close out because we are taping this for, uh, recording this for, for broadcast. So in the early days of On Being, when I was working with a lot of people in, in, in the newsroom who'd never not only not done something like this before, but not pondered it before. Um, they used to say to me, whenever we, had, uh, whenever we had a new show, and of course the person would, would be from some religious tradition, they would want me at the top of the show to give, give a list of 
So tell us, what do they believe? And, and you can kind of do that with Christianity, but it is a superficial thing to do with Christianity. Um, it, it's simplistic. It doesn't get you very deep. And, and with Islam and Judaism, it's kind of a nonsensical question. These are really traditions of daily lived piety, much more than lists of belief. Um, the defining question at the heart of our traditions, in fact, is how do you live? What do you do? How do you act? And with me today, I have two, I would say, humbly visionary leaders who've de devoted great passion and eloquence to insisting on this, that it is about how we live, how we choose to live. These are also two people, um, did I say their names? Shane Claiborne <laughs> and Ambassador um, Gobash. And I'm going to call you, um, I'm going to call you Omar tonight. Perfect. I noticed that every, all these American interviewers call you Ambassador, but... I, I much prefer my name. Okay, wonderful. Um, so... You can call me Ambassador if you want to. All right. Um, these are also two human beings who have lived with some discomfort within the religious group to which they belong and have chosen and loved. Um, and that's another thing that I remember about the early years of the show. Um, we just spent, in the, and that was the immediate post 9-11 years, we had an evangelical president in the White House. Religion was in the headlines in a new way. We spent a lot of time teasing out the diversity within Islam, the diversity within Christianity, the diversity within Judaism, the diversity within evangelical Christianity. Um, and here we are, years after that, that historical moment, um, where we live in a moment of very open violence, um, it, not only in the name of religion, but more recently a rise of violence done to religious communities, um, San Diego, Pittsburgh, New Zealand, Sri Lanka. I, uh, I hate to be as certain as I am that uh, whenever we air this program a few months in the future, there will be a, some kind of new litany of places. And still, here we are tonight for a searching conversation between a devout Christian and a devout Muslim in a synagogue. Mm. And Interfaith Philadelphia is one of many, many, many organizations, um, as, uh, as, as was stated, that was founded in the aftermath of September 11, 2001. Um, organizations that have sprung up around the world in every community I visit these days, um, very much counter to the narrative uh, that we must all always be at odds, and that violence is, is inherently part of this enterprise. Uh, and Interface of Philadelphia has just completed a year of civil conversations um, in this city that is so tied to the making of American history. Just before I came out here, I, I checked Twitter. I'm sorry to say that I do that a little obsessively at times. And this is what came up. My Twitter feed is beautiful. Um, it is. I mean, you get to choose what your Twitter feed is. Uh, someone named Kasim Rashid 
saying, my faith and my duty as a neighbor command me. If any synagogue in Virginia needs help with security, I'll stand guard. An attack on a synagogue is an attack on all houses of worship. And then Rabbi Latz replied to him saying, and if your mosques need us to stand guard, I'm there, my brother, I'm there. Our love is stronger than their hate. So my point is, this too happens on Twitter, and this too, this too, is the story of our time. Um, tonight, what I want us to engage on is less about what you stand over against um, than the generative story that you are both trying to write and make uh, beyond for, for the beyond of this moment. Um, how the traditions and communities that you are distinctively part of shape the lives you lead and the lives you're working um, to influence and, and how you understand your traditions and the, the lives you live within them to distinctively contribute to the reality of this moment of great global tumult in which each of us is working out our lives of faith and theology and spirit as civic beings. Um, I want to start, um, Omar, with you. I have this question I always ask whoever I'm speaking with, um, which is, uh, if I ask you to think about the religious and spiritual background of your childhood, uh, how would you begin to talk about that? Wow, very complicated then, I'd say. Yeah, it is complicated, <laughs> yeah. with you. Uh, and uh, you know, if I could just say, uh, in, in, on my way here, and over the last few days, I've been thinking, uh, I don't necessarily have this you know, very uh, peaceful or at peace message to come up with. I'm, uh, for me, uh, these questions are still very active and uh, uh, still, uh, you know, with every single terrorist incident, I think, um, again and again about the, uh, the issues that uh, we talk about and we're going to probably talk about tonight. Yeah. Um, so my, my uh, mother uh, is Russian. She comes uh, from a, a traditional Russian Orthodox background, even though she grew, grew up in the Soviet Union. Uh, and my father was a, uh, a Muslim who died in 1977, uh, Arab Muslim from the Gulf, uh, the uh, Arabian Gulf. And uh, since he died when we were very, very young, uh, it was very difficult to, to get any kind of moral compass. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't as though we were integrated into a wider community. Uh, and uh, so I spent a great deal of time trying to understand exactly where we fit into the world. Mm. Um, you know, my Muslim friends, uh, who were more traditionally brought up, uh, would be, were brought up in a, a very homogenous community, uh, both parents, uh, Arab, Muslim, uh, they could trace their lineage back, you know, maybe not a hundred generations, but at least three. Uh, right. We couldn't do that. And so we were, we were missing that kind of uh, net of meaning. And so I might look for it in literature. I tried to find it in, in the school mosque. I tried to find it at, uh, uh, with my you know, sort of foreign friends. Uh, overall, it was, I'd say it was a very, very uh, difficult experience. And when I was about uh, 12, I became incredibly devout to the extent where I, I describe myself now uh, as a fundamentalist. 
uh, an extremist, actually. Uh, and the, 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 it was at the time of the, um, in, I think it was the, the Israelis had inter, entered into uh, Lebanon and we were being uh, assaulted with these videos, uncensored videos of massive destruction. And, you know, I don't want to go into the politics of that, but the actual effect of seeing all of this um, mm -hmm. was very, very challenging for young men and women at the time. And also, um, it, it allowed for us to justify uh, an extremist vision of the world. And uh, I discovered actually that for, for that year of extremism, uh, I got actually a bit depressed because I had cut myself off from all of my friends, whether they were Christian, Lebanese, or, uh, or Muslim, but not devout enough. And it was a, a, miserable, a miserable year. Uh, so tell me when I should stop. No, no, yeah? and, and that, is that when you, you said that um, you describe um, a religion of rulemaking, uh, rulemaking rule monitor, and monitoring whether the rules are being followed and condemning when the rules are being broken. Yeah, and uh, why didn't I, I just came from the Middle East. Yeah. It, it's still very much like that in, uh, to, to a large extent. And uh, what I tried to do in my book was to look at, at the values and the principles that could actually guide our lives so that we could independently of outside authority make our own decisions. Yeah. And I think we're still uh, a far way off from that because people instinctively, uh, they've been brought up in certain traditions where you will ask questions to a learned man, uh, never a woman, but always a man, and you will, you will expect an answer. And uh, mm -hmm. so I've often suggested, uh, and I will continue to suggest that those learned men should push back and say, those questions are not of, of great interest. You can figure it out yourself. Hmm. Maybe you want to think about something else. Right. Yeah. I do want to, um, you were, uh, well, first of all, you were born in 1971, which was the same year the United Emirates was announced. Yeah. Seven, uh, it was a country formed of various tribes on the Arabian Peninsula. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Um, I think something else, um, you, your, um, I think your book is a letter, letter to a young Muslim, um, and it's directed to your son, but it's also very much about your father. Yes. Who you lost mm -hmm. when you were six. Yes. Um, he was shot and killed in 1977 at the Abu Dhabi International Airport. That's true. And I think it was, the shooter was a young Palestinian, and actually the intended target was a Syrian minister. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very um, moving how you, you I, I feel like in the, in the act of writing to your young son, you also excavated part of yourself. You, and you have these, these ages, these numbers, these ages mm. that were thresholds for you coming out of that experience. And one of them was six, mm -hmm. that when your son turned six, yeah. you, you realize that's how old. Yes. When he turned six, it was, and, and you know, he was my first son, named after my father, uh, and he was also uh, the son that I'd looked forward to from the age of about ten. Uh, from the age of about ten, I, you know, I decided that I really, uh, that I wanted to have children. Uh, it took me a long time, you know, relationships are not easy. <laughs> <laughs> but you did it. Yep, finally, yeah, yeah we got there. And so we named this great young man uh, safe after my father. Uh, then when he reached six, uh, it was a turning point for me because he had asked me, where's my grandfather, your father? Mm -hmm. And I explained to him, um, and I, you know, at the time I believed in brutal honesty. I didn't realize it was brutal, but uh, it, that's what it turned out to be. And I explained to him exactly what had happened. And for that entire year, he 
thought I was going to die. And I was like, no, 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 you misunderstood. So uh, I'm, I'm now I try to be a little more selective with the, with the things that I speak about. Um, yeah. uh, trying to, you know, but I think, so. I think you also <laughs> realized you could see how he was at six and that that's how, he, how old you were when you lost your father. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And then 19. Um, 19. 19 is the age of uh, the young man who killed my father. And it was at that age that I said to myself, I, I looked forward to that age to ask myself whether I could conceive of uh, taking up a weapon and killing somebody. And when I reached that age and I was like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a still a child, I have no idea what's right and wrong in this world, and I, but I do know that you can't do that. And so that is also, uh, that was a big kind of uh, age for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I got back to studying and, and moved on with things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was also uh, a very important point in my life because I had just moved to university. Uh, and there, once you're outside of the um, um, uh, boarding school environment, you're in, in university. And I remember we only had one lesson a week. Uh, that was the system then. And so you had a lot of spare time. And you couldn't, if you didn't have a structured life, or you weren't used to it, if you didn't know how to move into your own kind of self-directed life, you were in trouble. So I ended up in Mecca. Uh, I, went, I went to, uh, to you know, I, I looked for God again, uh, and I went and I spent, um, I think it was the last few days of Ramadan there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that was another intense period uh, where I was ready to give everything up and just uh, withdraw into a religious life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I thought, no, not being, not being, this is not real in a sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, well, there's more to talk about. We'll keep talking. <laughs> Shane, um, many years ago I asked you this question about how you start to describe the religious or spiritual background of your life. What I think is a little bit magic about that question is that it changes depending on where you are in your life. So I'm curious how you would start to talk about that now. Well, I, I grew up, as you know, down south. I've still retained a little of my southern charm yes. after 20 years in Philly, <laughs> but I... I mean, it was the Bible Belt, you know, and um, I, I, we had Christian music, Christian bumper stickers. We even had Christian candy that was testaments. <laughs> Kid, you, not, you can't make mints wrapped in a Bible verse. And, and that was my world. And somehow through all the clutter of that, I, I did fall in love with Jesus. And that's uh, my tradition growing up was the United Methodist Church. Um, but then it felt a little like uh, lifeless at times, so I, I levitated towards a uh, Pentecostal church in the town, and I, I got rebaptized because they didn't do the sprinkling thing. You had to go all the way underwater, so I had to do it again, you know. And, but I really like just kept leaning in, uh, falling deeper in love with Jesus, and, and seeing the Spirit sort of moving in different traditions. Um, and then I, I really began to find myself conflicted with a lot of the um, things that had come to characterize e- evangelical Christianity. Uh, I, I, the, I, ironically, you know, we, I mean, we also had country music down south, so it was like, you know, we had songs, this house is protected by the good Lord and a gun, and if you come uninvited, you'll meet them both, son. Like, that was, so I saw, it's like, wow, this, this is different, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, people think of evangelical Christians and they think anti-gay, anti-women, pro-death penalty, pro-military, pro-guns. Uh, and, and those things, uh, the deeper I fell in love with Jesus, the more I felt myself at odds with many of those kind of political values. Um, and I ended up coming up here to Philadelphia and continuing my 
quest uh, towards my faith and mm-hmm. learned a lot from Catholics, learned, uh, worked in India for a while with Mother Teresa. So I've just kind of kept learning uh, what it means to be Christian. And I found that a lot of Christians are good at defining what we believe, but not translating that into a real way of living. And that's why um, we, we, we worship Jesus, but we, always, we don't always do the things he ha- told us to do. So mm-hmm. that's the last 20 years, we've been forming a little community here on the north side of Philly, yeah. which I, I invited Omar to next time you're in yeah. town. And, you yeah. know, but we, we well, love it. And talk yeah. about the, the origin story of A Simple Way. Yeah. Um, started in 1995 uh, with you becoming, you and I think some other students becoming aware of dozens of homeless families who had moved into an abandoned church in North Philadelphia and were being told that they had to get out or be arrested. Yeah, Eastern University, where I went, is about a half hour outside of uh, the city. And um, we had read in the newspaper, I'll never forget, one of my friends just came and threw down this newspaper and said, you got to look at this. And it told the story of, um, of the growing homelessness of women and children in Philadelphia. And at the time, there were about 3,000 uh, families on the waiting list for housing. And then there's all these abandoned buildings. And so these families um, found a, an abandoned Catholic church building, and they moved into it. And yet what the newspaper article talked about was the response of the Catholic Church, which was that they had 48 hours to get out or they could be arrested for trespassing. (laughs) Something about that just didn't quite feel right, you know? And so, um, but these, these families hung a banner on the front of the cathedral and it said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? And it was catalytic for us. Many of us organized uh, a student movement at our college and others and and really uh, came to uh, stand in solidarity with those families who who lived there for months and months, and many of them got housing. They're incredible friends and heroes of mine to this day. And it was out of that that we, uh, ironically, in the ruins of that abandoned Catholic church, our vision for what it really means to be church and to live out um, our, our faith uh, was, was born you know, out of that. We, we kind of said, let's stop complaining about the church that we see and work on becoming the church that we dream of. And, and a simple way, which was in the beginning, a few of you in one house, is it, you describe, I haven't been there either, but I'm, I knew more about it years ago, but it's more like a village now. Yeah, we, we started by, well, in, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, as it talks about the early Christians, uh, it, it says that they were together and shared everything that they had. No one claimed any of their possessions were their own. They held everything with open hands, and it said there were no needy persons among them. It also says that they, they uh, worshipped out of their homes and dinner tables. So that vision really caught us, and so we pulled our money together, moved in, and um, and over the last 20 years, it has grown from a house to more of a village. And, and we've also been mentored and, and uh, uh, changed by our relationships in the neighborhood with people that, that have been there a whole lot longer than, than me. So we've got community gardens and murals and affordable housing, and we share food with uh, a lot of neighbors. And now a lot of it's led by, by folks that have, have lived in the neighborhood longer than me. Mm. And you lost your dreadlocks. 
I did. I was, I was telling. Yeah, I was that telling, was your trademark look. I know. I was telling Omar before. I, I he was expecting more hair, and I was sorry to disappoint him. But I did have like ten years worth of hair. Yeah. Um, and I, I traveled to Iraq and Afghanistan, and on one of those trips, uh, they told me I had to cut my hair. And, ah. and, and I, I instinctively was like, oh, because I'll stand out as an American. And they said, no, 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 we, we're actually worried you might be mistaken as an extremist or something, so just cut it. I'm like, get me the scissors then, and let's do this thing, you know? So cut it off, and, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, and it's, it's incredible because that work outside of the neighborhood feels very intricately connected to our neighborhood, mm-hmm. and um, certainly um, Martin Luther King and so many other voices have made that connection from the violence out there to the violence right here. And, uh, you know, he said every time we drop a bomb overseas, we can feel the second impact of it right here. Um, and we've, we keep telling our kids violence won't solve their problems, but they keep asking us, then why do our governments keep trying to use it? And mm-hmm. so there comes a moment where we need to be a consistent witness for nonviolence and, mm-hmm. and also tackle you know, the, the social problems locally and also on a macro level. So that's what we've been doing for 20 years. Um, well, I want to say one thing. You two can speak to each other. So if you want to jump in and ask a question or, <laughs> or respond to something that the other says, you don't have to be dependent. Go through me. Um, you know, it's where you just landed. Um, I've, I've, I've been thinking recently, you know, we've kind of stopped referring to the post 9-11 world because now there are other things to be post. And yet... Uh, Post-Trump, you mean? Well, no. no. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> um, I did. <laughs> Um, and yet it feels to me, in, including these, this, this new specter of attacks on religious communities, that, that we're now eating the fruit, and not so much of what happened, but of how we responded to it, mm. of what happened after. And you've said that as brokenhearted as you were over the events of September 11th, you were more, bro- you were more brokenhearted or as brokenhearted over what came next. And, and that, for you, part of what you did is you went to Iraq. That was one of the moves you made. Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember living in Philadelphia in the midst of that, you know, sandwich between D.C. and New York and so many folks affected. And people responding out of their pain, their, their anger, their fear, and mm-hmm. someone actually dropped a banner, those of us in Philly remember, from City Hall that said, let's kill them all and let God sort them out. So there were those terrible expressions that we see, still see iterations of that in our, mm-hmm. our society. But I heard about another group of folks in New York that um, were directly impacted. They lost their immediate loved ones, their moms and dads, kids and um, spouses, and they got together to grieve, but then as they saw the response of the war, they said, our grief is not a cry for war. Uh, Please don't kill in in the name of our loved ones, and more violence is not going to heal this violence. And so 
the, the, the Families for Peaceful Tomorrows, the Christian peacemaker teams, the Muslim peacemaker teams, all of these groups, Voices in the Wilderness, all started working together. And I was invited on a delegation to Iraq. And, and the first time I went was in March of 2003. So that was during uh, the shock and awe bombing. There were 900 bombs a day falling on Baghdad. And we we're there as a presence to try to be peaceful and to stand against the bombing and war. We volunteered in hospitals, met with families, um, and there are a, a million things that happened through that. Um, but I was telling Omar before, on the way out of Iraq, we had a car accident that changed my life. And uh, we were driving through the desert and uh, hit something in the road. We don't know exactly what it was, but our car flipped over and all of us were injured. And these Iraqi Muslim doctors saved our lives. And ever since then, you know, when I read some of the stories of my faith, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, where a man's injured on the roadside, I always read it as a person coming down the road thinking, would I reach out if I encounter my neighbor? But now I was the person in the ditch. <laughs> so I see it with new eyes. And, and, um, and we got to go back and reconnect with those doctors. But as I look at the past, you know, 15 years, the question you raise is so important is, where are we at? And I can't help but think we've, we've just kept adding fire, uh, fuel to a fire mm -hmm. that's creating more and more uh, hostilities. And, and, and I learned that from soldiers, too, that came back. Friends of mine that said, you know, I joined the military because I wanted to go over and do something about terrorism, but I learned that we were creating it. And uh, at every moment, it feels like uh, we've, we've made the world much more fragile. And, and one young man who was a Christian, he said, I just came to the point where I felt like I couldn't hold a gun in one hand and the cross in the other that teaches me to love my enemies. And I can't love my enemies and simultaneously prepare to kill them. And so he, you know, mm -hmm. he left the military. So I, I think that there's, there's so much that we can do. But in some ways, we've got to be as willing to risk our lives for nonviolence and for peace and this, the kind of conversations you're creating uh, with as much courage as people have been uh, willing to die for mm. the violent alternatives. Mm. Um, uh, so, Omar, you, 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 you wrote somewhere um, that 9-11 was the most shocking terrorist incident of your lifetime, which I thought was a striking statement because your father also died in a terrorist incident. Um, your move was to move towards the arts and education and literature and to open an art gallery. Mm -hmm. So talk about that. Oh, if, if I can first just respond yeah, yeah. to, the, to yeah. the question of post 9-11 and post something else. Uh, for me, I, I, I look at the wars in the region, uh, something that, you know, we really Certain wars we can certainly control and hold ourselves back from, uh, but uh, if, if you're talking about uh, Western forces coming into the region, there is a machine that enjoys or needs to do what it needs to do. Uh, so I prefer to look as a Muslim at what I can do in my own community. And I think that you know one of our responses to uh, September 11th was to say, and I, I disagreed with it at the time, it was we need to improve our image in the West. And there were a number of us who said, actually, we need to improve the reality that we're living um, because uh, it's, the, the, this is not something that is going to be solved with a, with a bit of communications. Um, we certainly had 
uh, extremist thinking that was uh, sort of bandied about with little thought. And there was no sense in which what we were talking about would ever come to reality. And for me, September 11th was listening to uh, this kind of extremist thinking for 15 years and then seeing it actually being executed. So that for me was, was the turning point. And now almost, almost 20 years on, uh, we're looking at massive changes taking place right in the heartland of, of Islam. And so that's why I think you're actually seeing the first positive change uh, coming out uh, of the region from uh, September 11th. And it's actually with a great deal of consciousness. Um, it, it, it turns out that there are these huge bureaucratic machines also in the production of religion, right? And, and religious really? discord. <laughs> it turns out, yes. <laughs> uh, you see, I, I you know, discover a new revelation every day. Uh, so, and, and to actually get these things to change their direction, it has actually taken all these years. Mm -hmm. And there have been people who have been watching and really, really kind of waiting for the right moment. And one of the right moments was a few months ago when um, the, the Pope was invited to, uh, the, uh, to Abu Dhabi, to, to the yes. United Arab Emirates. And for me, that was a massive signal that Were actually... Yeah, I was, I was. I got this very last minute invitation to come and I wanted to do it so badly and it really didn't work <laughs> last minute, but, well, yeah. I, I, got but a, I don't know if people here heard about this. I mean, Well, this is what's disappointing. I got a last minute, I was in Beijing at the time, I got a last minute invitation to go on CNN and actually comment on the visit. Yeah. So I was there for five hours and it was absolutely astounding to see you know, the, the Pope in, in, in the Arab world, uh, in the Gulf states, which you know, traditionally is seen as this um, holy territory uh, the, 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 uh, bin Laden talked about foreign troops uh, uh, kind of uh, despoiling or sullying the territory of, of Islam. Uh, and so to have the Pope come in with the, with the, at the invitation of the political forces, at the invitation of the religious uh, powers is really quite remarkable and shows a massive turning away from the logic that took us to September 11th in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, say some more about that. It's so interesting because we have such a ridiculously short sense of time in this culture. Mm, of yeah. course it takes 15 years. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it will take 50. I remember yes. Desmond Tutu saying to me about, uh, you know, that the truth and reconciliation process was the beginning of something and that what he was given hope by is that 300 years ago in Europe, you know, they were in an endless war mm. and that, 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 that really transformation is generational, it's not. Yeah, and I, I can tell you just from my own personal experience uh, over the last year, I, I took a sabbatical from my work as a diplomat and it was extremely interesting because, I mean, I took it um, because of a certain disillusionment. Uh, and this is what I wanted to talk to you uh, about. I mean, the, the, Shane, uh, you know, in, from what I saw of your videos online, there was a cert certainty in the way in which you approach the world. And I can't say, I mean, that I share that uh, luxury. I often find that I'm swept off my feet and I have to start again. And, and, and that's perhaps where I differ. Um, so for me, it's a constant struggle. It's a constant battle to keep pushing uh, for the things that I believe are true and valuable and just. And one thing that really helped me over the last year was the number of young men and women in the Emirates and, and further afield who would actually come up to me and thank me you know, in an airport for having written a book that helped them direct their lives. And so when, I, when you talk about generational change, I'm 47, this is a sort of a 19, uh, 19 year old man or woman coming up to me and saying thank you for helping me. So I'm beginning to feel that, uh, that there is hope. Right. 
Um, let's see, where do we want? There's so much here. Um, I, yeah, you know, well, okay, no. Yeah, we talk, so I was talking, I was having a conversation <laughs> last night with some people about the, how we, we put the unedited interview out. And this is the unedited interview. <laughs> um, it's messy. Um, so, yeah, so I want to talk about something that I think is quite different. And, and you're getting at that, too. There, it, well, one frust- one uh, impatience I have sometimes with, um, with uh, kind of simplistic ideas about what it means to have a civil conversation is that somehow we just celebrate what we have in common and and don't actually focus on our really beautiful and fast, like the particularities that in fact make us interesting to each other. It seems to me there's a, there's a core dynamic in the, this, the trajectory the two of you have been on, which is quite different. So for you, Shane, I mean, you've said somewhere that, um, that, the, you know, that the critical piece of formation in, in your path and for a simple way is this the discovery of community and um, and yet for you Omar there th- there's this there's this tension between revelation and reason and between and the importance uh, the, 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 for, for you the countercultural move is actually asserting the importance of the individual. Yes, exactly. I was just going to say. Yeah. Actually, yeah. <laughs> so, and I, and I, so let's kind of tease that out. I mean, how, yeah, would you talk about why that is, uh, how, how that is the formative move? And I kind, of, I kind of think that that's also in that story you're telling of 19-year-olds who walk up to you at the airport. Yeah, well, a few, a few days ago, somebody said to me, as a political figure, he said, you're a rebel. And I said, no, I'm not a rebel. I just don't like groupthink. And he said, exactly, you're a rebel, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I get worried when everybody in a room agrees on something because I think you're hiding something or you, there is something you don't see. Uh, and it, it just doesn't feel healthy. And so I, I need to push back. But there's also, it's also because I feel that, um, especially with the rise of the, the internet and, and, and all of these social technologies, even before, the, well, before, the, uh, so, before social media, there was, uh, in a sense, a discovery of the, the world around us. And when, as we were growing up in the Middle East, it was a very bleak kind of existence, a very bleak outlook, uh, very little color in it. And all of a sudden, you saw all of these different things that could entice you, that right. sort of set off buttons that allowed you to begin to say, actually, I, I identify with these things and not with those. And, uh, you know, we all wear the same clothes in, 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 the, in the Gulf countries. Yeah? All the men dressed mm-hmm. in white, we all look the same. All the women dressed in black, they all look the same. No sign of any individuality. But as you, as you observe people, People, you begin to see these tiny instances of, of individuality, and I think that's that's uh, a growing movement. And if it's being uh, displayed in, in our uh, outer form, uh, it's certainly bubbling up underneath. Uh, and I think that's something also the political authorities uh, are beginning to understand. Uh, it's taking place, but they don't. They have no idea how to really uh, relate to it. As you see, you know the the. Um, uh, change in, in leadership in Algeria, the, the mm-hmm. protests in Sudan recently. Right. All of this is a sign of people wanting to live their lives, not the life that the community insists that they lead. Right. Oh. Jane, talk about, you know, because in this culture of extreme individualism, um, 
I, I, there's some place you um, described. Oh yeah, when you that when you started um, the simple way, you talked for many, 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 many hours, summing up the entire mission as love God, love people, and follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you it had, took us a long time to get yeah. back to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but then you, but over the years now you've had to put so much flesh on those bones, mm. and. Um, the, 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 the balance between orthodoxy and orthopraxis, what is, what is believed and what is lived, but that the holder of all of that is community. The accountability is community. And it's kind of un-American. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, as I, I think of community um, and I think of God, in, in, in my own faith journey, I've come to see God as an expression of community. And I mean, we would talk about that as uh, creator, son, spirit. You know, there's this kind of dynamic of God that is communal and we're made in the image of God. And uh, when the first human is made and the breath is breathed into the dirt, it's not pronounced really good until they're helping one another. So that communal image is there from the beginning. Um, and... and uh, uh, but I think what I like related to this, what I would say is that oneness doesn't mean sameness and uh, unity doesn't mean uniformity, but actually the most powerful unity happens in the midst of diversity. So I, I like saying that we are about harmonizing, but not homogenizing, right? We're all kind of singing in a symphony and it's beautiful because there is a diversity um, Rabbi Arthur Waskow from Philadelphia, great teacher and hero in our city, he, he talks about sameness as the way of empires and corporations. They, everything is uniform, but the Creator made diversity, so all of us have a unique fingerprint and DNA, and there's this beautiful diversity built into everything that God has made. So I, I love that. Um, it's also part of why we have so much division, I think, is we can't find that yeah. unity in the, in, in the midst of it. So um, it's, it's a wild dichotomy, right? Even in the Christian church, I mean, I wrote, we wrote this uh, book of prayer called Common Prayer, and as we were trying to bring Christian traditions together, we found out that there are over 30,000 Christian denominations. <laughs> and Jesus' longest prayer is that we would be one as God is one. You're like, wow. <laughs> We got to get this thing together. So, uh, but yeah. So I think that's that's part of the 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 the, the, the tension that we. Yes, hold. and there's something utterly natural about that too, right? Even as it makes things very challenging. Here's a line. Here's some lines from letters to a young Muslim that I love. Life is diverse. Living is to live with difference. Anyone telling you that difference should be stamped out is stamping out life. Mm. Those people insisting that there are black and white answers to the difficult questions are stamping out the diversity that is inherent within us. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I liked it too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should um, collect questions. Just pass them down. Okay. Can, can I just respond also? Yeah. Uh, I'm not against community. I just want community to expand its sense of who, who can belong. Oh, I know you're not against community. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just that the emphasis for you 
is, is different. I had to justify my individuality since I, I felt excluded from the community right from the start. So mm. I had no choice but to accept that I was different. Um, you know, uh, the, people can be very idealistic about their values, but when, when push comes to shove, I had a Russian mother. Mm. Yeah, it, it mattered. And no matter how hard I tried, you're not fully a member. Uh, and so I began to sort of, rather than persecute and, and, and uh, torment myself for being uh, different, I realized I couldn't be responsible for my parents' choices, um, but I could redefine the value. And I could actually begin to say, uh, I, I actually, I, what I thought was there must be so many people who feel excluded in the same way that I do. Mm -hmm. And it, I discovered that actually the vast majority of people feel that they're excluded and they have to, you know, sort of bow down and, and, and uh, submit to some uh, leader type uh, mentality out there. And, and something that you also um, come back to again and again in your letters to your sons um, just gets at one of the, I say, a very mysterious tension about being alive. I mean, it really gets back to this fact that there's difference, however, however beautiful it is what we're working for. Um, you, I think, because you've had to. Because this, your, your uh, challenge has been to, to think about um, you know, the, the place of individual mm. conviction and imagination. Um, and you're a diplomat, which to me fits with this, that you, know, that yeah. you, you were saying, and, and in Shane, you do this in your own way too, we, reality is complex. And... Um, and, and the moral challenge is very often in areas of gray. It's very often mm -hmm. where uh, the black and white answers, which, which we all actually long for and which our traditions um, sometimes provide, um, where that's not enough, where we still have to develop moral conscience and make complicated decisions to live with the, with the world as it is and not as we wish it to be. Well, I, I noticed that uh, amongst very kind of uh, extreme uh, preachers uh, in the Islamic world, they'll often talk about the beauties of nature and you know how they want to withdraw into the mountains or into the countryside and live like that. And I think, well, that's that's all great, but you're not actually uh, testing your faith in uh, the city, where really that's where life is really complicated. And you should be you should be helping people to actually achieve their faith in complex environments. I hope yeah. I persuaded you with that. That's good, that's good. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of those same tendencies in, in the Christian tradition too. To, uh, there's a lot of communities that pull themselves out of society oh, to sure. try to be this utopian kind of thing. And that was true even in Jesus's day, these folks that would, you know, uh, the Essenes and other groups that kind of moved out of uh, the world. And, and, uh, and that Jesus's teaching is that we would be light in the darkness, that we would be, you know, love amidst the hatred. So it's this kind of contrast, or as one of my uh, friends, Stanley Hauerwas, he says, we're meant to be air fresheners in the toilet of the world, you know, that we're, we're meant to uh, leave off the fragrance of love, you know, but you can't do that if you're just Radio is outside. very visual. I don't know when they have to cut that out. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I, I think that, that idea that we're, we're meant to live in this world and to uh, be light in, in the midst of the darkness is, is uh, at the very heart of what 
community. And community is, for me, a part of that is like the way that you put a fire out is by scattering it out. And the way that you keep a fire alive is by stoking it. So community for, for us, I think, is about um, keeping that fire alive. And it's easy to blow out a candle, but hard to put out a fire. And I, I think that's kind of what we are needing right now in the world is, is, a, is a fire of love that can uh, burn really bright. Because sometimes if the, the hatred feels like it's overpowering the love and, and yet we know better. But we've, we've got we've to find some common unity in the movement. Uh, and I think the intersectional justice and all the stuff that we're talking about is finding ways that we can sing, this, sing the same song of love right now. Mm-hmm. I also think as a journalist that this narrative, mm, this reality, the, the fire, you know, that you say it's bigger than we realize and the story you're telling about um, this, this quiet evolution that, that is happening 15 years later that's not in the New York Times today. Mm. Um, no, it's not. No. no, no. I, we also have to take as seriously the, the, the generative narrative, the things that are going right. And actually, yeah, in journalism, which is the official way we tell the story of our time, we absolutely privilege the catastrophic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I heard someone say we don't cover planes that land. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, if, right. If, if it bleeds, it leaves. That's, and so yeah. I, and I, I think in the Christian church, too, it's very clear that some of the loudest voices haven't been the most beautiful and some of the beautiful voices haven't been amplified like they should. And I think that's true in almost every tradition. You know, we've had extremists for hatred that no one kills with more passion than when they think God is on their side. And so they've hijacked the headlines with hatred. And you can have one pastor in Florida that burns the Quran, and all of a sudden, like, that hijacks the narrative of what Christians believe. But that's such a good example, because that pastor in Florida who who burned the Quran, the evangelical community of that city rallied against that, right? Mm -hmm. And that story didn't get told. It was this one outlier, and he got all the investigation and all the coverage, as though that told told the story of the whole, which it didn't. There's so much of that. That's why we like on being. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One hour a week. Well, we haven't gotten anywhere near through my notes, but do we have some questions? Reverend Jesse Garner is going to come back up and... facilitate. If you could go back to immediately after 9-11, what questions do you wish we had been asking each other then? And are they the same questions that we would ask today? Such a good question. After 9-11, immediately. Hmm. I'll let you go first. <laughs> Shane, you thought about this a lot. Well, I, I think after um, every 
tragedy, we, you know, it exposes our, our character in the midst of the rawness of that. And um, I, I was just with some of the Amish community after that were, we, we've been melting guns into plows uh, around the country. And one of those was um, we melted a gun in the, the Lancaster in the area where um, there was a terrible school shooting in the Amish school uh, over a decade ago. And, and the response of the Amish was stunning. They, they were lost a bunch of their kids, but then they went to be with the shooter's family to accompany them in their grief, and they pulled their money together and began to create scholarships for the children of Charlie Roberts that killed their kids, and they went to the funerals together. And out of all of that, there was immense healing that did not ignore the, the terrible thing that was done, but that did not mirror it either, you know. And, and I, I had the chance to meet the mother of Charlie Roberts, and, um, and she told the story of this Amish man holding her husband as they just wept together. And we reflected on that, and we, we, one thing we did was wrote an article called um, Amish for Homeland Security. <laughs> <laughs> but sort of going, what if we had had that kind of imagination after 9-11? And I think like part of what we've got to do is, is have a chance to ask the questions of how do we live in a world where violence and hatred is real without mirroring the same thing that we're trying to heal the world of, right? So how do we, in, in fighting the beast, not become the beast? And that's certainly what happened right after 9-11 is we became the very um, violence that we abhorred. And I mean, I felt that being in Baghdad. We had bombs falling on us. We saw this, the, the most horrific things I can imagine, and it was coming at the hands of our government. I went to a hospital that had two bombs fall on it. And you're like, this is the kind of stuff that, like, if, if you weren't angry already, this is sure the stuff that would make you angry, you know? So I, I think that's, that's what I would hope for, is that we would have a moment to pause and say, like, what is really going to heal the wounds of what happened to us? And how do we respond uh, honoring the anger and fear and pain without without extending that trauma and exacerbating those wounds and creating a whole bunch of new victims that lose their kids in the same way we lost ours. Mm -hmm. You're on. Oh, wow, okay, so I've been given a few minutes to think about it. I still haven't made progress. Uh, I, I, I go back and I was saying, what could we have done? And I think in the Arab world, we should have asked ourselves some serious questions and given ourselves honest answers. The issue was that we said it's a question of our image in the West and so we want to go and hire all these consultancies and all these you know, lobbyists and, and start thinking about you know, setting up uh, TV channels. And the reality was that you know, we, we had to look at, at the, the machine, the religious machine that we had set up and, and to a large extent you know, what was being funded either, either by governments or, or by private individuals. And you know, it may have been it, it just sort of inertia or laziness or uh, you know, f fear of well, people like me. We didn't have 
the, the opportunity to really uh, speak to the right people about uh, what was going on. Uh, so again, access to power, uh, and then the security in which you could speak to that power. Those are questions that, that may have hindered some, some of uh, the, the progress that we tried to, to make. Uh, and so, you know, my personal reaction was art gallery, uh, then spending two years trying to persuade New York University to open in the, in the Emirates. And the mm. reason, the reason for New York University, and somebody said, well, why don't you go to Columbia? And I said, because I want it to be in downtown. I want, it, I want downtown to understand us, yeah? uh, where, where the pain uh, took place. And these were all indirect methods of kind of repair, repairing the damage and allowing us also to reflect on, on what had happened. Yeah, in the Emirates, we're not particularly responsible for anything. And yet, as Muslims and as uh, people who, I suppose, had maybe turned a blind eye to radical thought uh, and who had treated e either as a joke or as something that was to be taken seriously but never conceived of actually taking place, uh, I think that uh, I, I go back and say, with, with hindsight, it was it was it was grossly negligent on our on our part. Mm. Well, I thought of, as you were sharing that one of my experiences in Iraq, where we met with these Iraqi intellectuals, and one of the things that they said is, "Well, you know that we have some weapons in Iraq because you have the receipts from them," <laughs> and they, you know, re. They, they said, you know, the Bell helicopters that were used to gas the Kurds came from the United States, and so you're very complicit in some of this violence. And I thought, sorry, you know, you look at this and you're like, wow, when Martin Luther King said that our government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, you look at the world, we, we have helped arm so much of the world with weapons, uh, over 150 countries, you know, and you're like, Jesus said, you pick up the sword, you die by the sword, and we, we've really created a very violent world. It, it's kind of like, man, if I were selling guns in my neighborhood and trying to tell kids not to kill each other, like, that doesn't quite work, you know, and I think in our world right now, we've, I, I, I we, we have uh, the, the capacity to do so much damage, so um, one of the things I think we could do after 9-11 is really do a little um, uh, inward work at, at disarming the world because when we look at North Korea and we go, they shouldn't have nuclear weapons, maybe we should say, maybe we shouldn't have ho half the nuclear weapons in the world, you know, right here in our country. We have the capacity of over 50,000 Hiroshima bombs, and so that really limits our credibility to be a voice for peace around the world. I have to say at this stage that I'm very close uh, to you know, coming out with my denunciation of global capitalism if Shane provokes me further. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a We've fun been night. Warned. This is a fun night. <laughs> Another question? Yeah. How does art in the Middle East, or presumably Kensington, Bring about change. Uh, well, my, my uh, reason for opening an art gallery was because I wanted to access the minds of those around me. Uh, you know, we, I, I felt that we were always wearing different kinds of masks and we weren't necessarily uh, open to the idea of discussing things, but I, I wanted to see how people perceived the world around me. 
And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of what came out initially um, in, in the art gallery was very political art, very kind of violence-oriented art or reactions to violence. And I felt that was a little boring, you know, it was a bit obvious. And, you know, so we, we managed to expand, um, uh, well, uh, we managed to find artists who were doing other things. And all of a sudden what we realized was actually um, people started replicating this model of having a gallery that was a platform for artists. And now in that area, we, we, we had a, a warehouse uh, and we were opened illegally. That whole area has now been redesignated as an art district. And kids are actually finding that they're able to express their anger, frustration, uh, the, the turmoil. They're, they're able to express themselves through uh, art and actually um, make a living as an artist. And that was always something that was in my mind, that you couldn't be an artist in the Arab world, or at least an art part of the Arab world, because it was inconceivable, just as you couldn't be an economist because there was no data. Yeah, you had to beg the government for data. Uh, you couldn't be a philosopher because nobody was interested in listening to you, or because you wouldn't be able to put your ideas out there in the first place. There, there's no platform. So, I mean, well, art was just one way in which we could tackle those issues. There are a whole bunch of other ways as well. I was thinking, um, Shane, I, I looked at the, the, the mission statement, I think, of the simple way is together cultivating a neighborhood we can be proud of. And I actually thought, Omar, that this was a version of that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was, didn't, wasn't pride, it was a desire to influence the world around myself yeah. uh, in a way that I could, could do. Because I, I couldn't change government policy, but I could, with a, with a tiny pinprick, uh, set off a little, yeah, I mean, the, the art gallery, I can't believe, has actually survived so long. Um, but it has, and, and it, it led to, there was a snowball effect. So that was very exciting. Um, and then, you know, the work I did on NYU, it, it really worked. It was astounding. It actually exists. And you know, you've got graduates and you've got kids who actually wonderfully have no idea that I had anything to do with it. And they come and tell me all about how great it is. Yeah. yeah. So this, this <laughs> and is what's it called? It's called anyway. New York University Abu Dhabi. Oh, yeah. oh Abu Dhabi. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah. A, it's a full, uh, you know, yeah. full scale campus. Yeah. Right. So, um, and then again, when it comes to literature and the promotion of literature, there's a very strong poetic tradition in the Gulf states. Yes. Uh, and in Islam. And in Islam. And I have to say that as the outsider, as, uh, as the one who doesn't like groupthink, I said, well, we've got to get the novel guy. And so we pushed very hard uh, back on that. And now there's this thing called the International Prize for Arabic Fiction. Uh, in conjunction with the Booker Prize of London. So it's called, it's yeah. basically the Arab Booker. And what, what happened was, because of the credibility behind the name, uh, a number of leading poets started writing novels in order to, to uh, win the prize. And the reason why I wanted a novel, I, I, I believe in the, the power of the novel, is that I felt that, you know, this, the, the the discipline of coming up with a, a linear kind of narrative was something that we were lacking in our part of the world. So, you know, you have these poetic complaints about the world, but you couldn't describe uh, the life of an individual across, you know, 30 chapters, which for me was exciting. Uh, I admit yeah. it's an odd excitement, but... Uh. Also, the, <laughs> we, we, we talk about social change. We, we need social creativity, yeah. right? Yeah. We need social courage. Yes. And and that's that's the dimension of this that you're that you're nourishing. I think I'd agree yeah, with that, yeah. yeah. I, I think that, that uh, w there's a beautiful writer, Walter Brueggemann, that talks about the prophetic imagination. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, sometimes we, uh, we misunderstand the biblical prophets and we think that they were just trying to foretell 
the future, but they were actually trying to change the present. They were trying to lead us into a different future, to stir our imaginations, to refuse to accept the status quo as normal and to build something new. And one of the things that um, the prophets Micah and Isaiah speak of is beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks. And that that imagination is what um, kind of stirred our work to invite people to donate guns because we, we, we don't have a ton of swords but we have a lot of guns <laughs> you know and uh, so we invited people to donate them and you know I just spent 40 days traveling around the country melting guns into tools but there's something that happens at the forge that goes beyond words it's that imagination creativity and it, it moves the heart to see folks that may not from different faiths, from different backgrounds that come and take the same hammer and beat a piece of metal that was designed to kill into a piece of metal that is designed to cultivate life. And, and so I, I think that's, that's exactly the kind of work that I think we've been trying to do um, in our neighborhood. And that's why art plays such a key role. I've got a, I've got a, a, a mural of Banksy's, um, it's a counterfeit, but we, we painted it on our wall. Krista, you'll have to come see it next time. But it's got two kids standing on a pile of guns and bombs and weapons and kind of looking forward to a new world. And so I think that art is a part of um, um, who, who we are and what we're doing, but it's also what our, need, our, our world needs right now. Yeah. And certainly something that like, I think conservatives and liberals often have in common is that they've lost their imagination and they've lost their joy, they've lost their hope, and we kind of end up rehashing some of the same arguments over and over again. Mm-hmm. Shane, an indelic- indelicate question. Uh, what is the time between receiving the guns and actually converting them into uh, something artistic? About uh, 10 seconds. Okay, yeah, we, st- <laughs> we You know, there's all these Christian pastors that keep telling their, their people to bring guns to church. And they really? mean, like, oh. because we should have guns in church. We're like, this is insane. So we have BYOG Sundays, bring your own gun. But we, <laughs> we lay them on the altar and we melt them down. And we don't uh, let 10 minutes go by without chopping one of those in half. So... Yeah, so they come with a gun, they leave with a plow. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we just had friends in the West Bank that said, could we get a forge over there? Because literally, wouldn't it be powerful to have um, folks from Israel and from the West Bank, from Palestine or Gaza, like take the same hammer and be destroy some guns? So yeah. I'll, I'll let you know when we do that, all right? Absolutely. Brother? We'll join in. <laughs> How can a young person today feel a longer sense of time? Longer sense of time? Well, depression helps. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the short-term answer, though. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well... Our relationship to time is, is quite interesting. I, I remember I used to fantasize about st- stopping time uh, still and just watching the world go by. Um, it leads to a fairly inactive lifestyle, so um, I'm, not, I'm not really sure why you would want time to sort of you know, change speeds. Uh, I, I think it's more important to be really active, actively involved. If you can grab hold of some beliefs and, and really believe them, that helps as well. 
you know, it, it, there were moments when I felt I was living eternity. Uh, and, you know, for example, I remember I didn't, I didn't have very many sort of great convictions at the age of 21, and I felt like a very, very old man. I thought, I'm so close to the end of my life, and I still don't know what to do with it. And, uh, and I compare it to how I feel today, and I actually feel that life is moving on at a wonderful pace, very, very kind of gentle, and I have so many certainties behind me, not, not through kind of rational thought, but through experience and through observation and through reflection. So yeah. I think young people will throw away the iPhone to begin with, uh, but apart from that, you'll still face the issue of how time passes for you. Uh, know that it comes with exposing yourself to, to ideas um, and, and trying to be constructive about things. That was good. I, I listened to some of your stuff, too, because I was doing my homework, Krista. So I listened to Omar, on, and, and you were talking about technology, too. And I, yeah. I, I, like it made me think, uh, some of what we pass our time doing is looking at screens and pixels rather than people's eyes. And I think we need to uh, uh, try to moderate our technology. Now, I think there's like, there's some cool stuff that we've done. Like we've had Skype calls with kids in our neighborhood and the kids I met in Kabul, and mm. they're dreaming together of a world free of violence. So that, that's magic that, you know, the technology allows us to do. But there's also, um, I don't think we're going to die and think, wow, I should have spent more time on Twitter. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, yeah, so I think, I think we need to like maybe declutter our lives a little bit and move mm -hmm. move a little bit slower and uh i learned that from my wife so i just probably <laughs> should give her a shout out like because she's always you know kind of we don't we, we're trying to live with with less technology so that we can be more present with the people we're with so there's certainly something to be said of the good that technology can do but i, I really was listening to omar on some of that too i think there's real limitations to it and uh, if all we have is virtual friends, we're pretty lonely people. Yeah. It's like if all we eat is virtual food, we'll probably be really hungry. Yeah. I, I, I think that um, something that comes up either implicitly or explicitly in both of your work and writing is this matter of eldering and cross-generational relationship, and which I find rising and also just this overt hunger for it rising. And we're really aware of it in, in the community of On Being, which is very, very profoundly cross-generational. Um, and I think part of that is, so I, I mean, I, in my mind, that is one of the answers. Get close to somebody who's lived a while and knows in their body yeah. that life is long. And, and, and at the same time, mm. I think, you know, I think that there's, there's a wisdom of many ages, you know, old and wise. You know, you know, first of all, everybody, some people just get old. You don't necessarily get wise. Um, but, but there's a wisdom. You, I'm sure you're wise. But um, I'm, an, I'm an elder, too, by the way. I've really, so, but there, um, there are, there's a wisdom of young adulthood and of the teenage years of this impatience, this, this holy impatience to, you know, this ability to see the world whole and want to make it real. And, and I think that what eldering can do, and I think what it has done across history is kind of hold that and let that be more resilient because it is accompanied mm. and leavened in, in, in this relationship. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. One of my mentors is an 88-year-old Catholic nun here in Philly, Sister Margaret McKenna. She's a medical mission sister. And um, 
we just went camping together and I saw her jumping off the dock, diving in the water. I'm like, she's 88, you know, but she got really sick and I went to visit her and she gave me this very impassioned, dramatic speech. This might be the last time I see her, but she said, I'll be on the other side on the front waving at you when you come over. And so I went to, I checked on her like a couple days later. I just, you know, is she doing all right? So I called her community and they said, oh yeah, she miraculously got better. In fact, she just got arrested at the Pentagon. <laughs> I hope I'm doing that when I'm 88 years old. <laughs> How have relationships with people of other faith traditions impacted your own prayer life? Mm. These are great questions. <laughs> well, in, in my life, I've, uh, I find that I seek them out. Uh, so. When I was in Moscow, I was in Moscow for 10 years. Uh, some of my closest friends were, you know, the, from the Lubavitcher community. Um, and, you know, obviously my, my condolences to what's just happened, for what's just happened. But they were great, you know, we, we, we got on incredibly well. I loved the, uh, you know, sort of nuggets of wisdom that I was uh, showered with. And uh, it, was, it, it was wonderful to reach out to, to uh, you know, essentially the other side. And, um, I think also when I was at boarding school, uh, my exposure to the sermons on, well, actually we, we were in chapel almost every day, so there was a sermon every day. Uh, it, it showed me a different way in which you could communicate about faith. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly think that, you know, our, our part of the world, the, uh, the traditional kind of sermon on Friday used to be a very, very fiery, uh, aggressive and violent type of denunciation of everybody else. Uh, and I you know, felt that I actually knew everybody else and I thought that that was unfair. So I think some of that is now sinking into you know, our own consciousness that yeah, the other is not so horrible. Mm. Boy, I've, I learned so much being um, among uh, Muslim communities as I uh, was in Iraq and especially like just about the devotion I'm thinking my gosh it was hard for me to like spend 10 minutes in quiet and like hear you know multiple times a day this prayer life and um, and so I learned a lot from that about discipline and centering ourselves in prayer um, and I've learned a lot from the Jewish my Jewish friends and rabbi friends about interrogating scripture and stirring questions and wrestling with the word and one of my my friends said uh, a good rabbi if they're asked what's two plus two they'll answer by saying what's 16 divided by four because they <laughs> like the questions they like the dialogue you know um, and the commonality I mean I've, I've learned to read my own faith better by listening yeah. to others and one of my rabbi friends, he says, uh, we were talking about the death penalty. He's like, we don't agree on some things, you and I, but the death penalty, we totally agree on. He said, the, the Jewish community did away with the death penalty a long time ago. He, said, he talks about how the, all that worked itself out. And he says, the irony is, it's Christians that are abusing Hebrew scripture to justify the death penalty. And you guys have the nagging problem of Jesus to deal with. <laughs> so I, uh, I love it. You know, I, I keep finding my, my own faith deepened as I talk with others and pray with others. I think that, that in fact, is the paradox of meaningful uh, interfaith or cross-religious relationship that um, that you at one and the same time it, actually the soil beneath your own feet is richer mm. you know your own identity better and the world is larger mm -hmm. because of the existence of this I see. Uh, it just popped into my head. Last Christmas, I was actually in uh, in Moscow, 
and it was Christmas evening, and I was at a synagogue. They have restaurants in the synagogues there, and uh, I was with one of the chief rabbis. They have two, and it was a it was a very very strange evening. A Muslim, uh, uh, a, a Jewish rabbi, and uh, we were celebrating Christmas. So. <laughs> <laughs> Each in his own way, of course. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that all the questions from the? Okay. Wow. Fantastic. Oh, you know, I I want to thank you, Shane, for um, you have this language. I always I feel like with words like interfaith, they don't quite sum it up, and and there are a lot of you know interfaith ecumenical is another terrible word. I remember this. Um, Paulus Priest saying, ecumenism is that which, if we had a better word for, we would have more of. That was his definition <laughs> of ecumenism. And I, I feel like it's so important when we're, when we're speaking of these experiences, which in fact are transformative, that we, that we try to always keep a really fresh and vivid ecosystem of words and kind of say what we're saying rather than let these labels. And you, you have this language... Um, which I feel is a synonym for uh, interfaith, Shane, spiritual border crossing. Mm-hmm. I like that. <laughs> um, I'm just going to ask two more questions. Um, I, I feel like we've been touching on this, but I want to go a little more deeply into it. It's, very, it's true that both Islam and Christianity have a self-understanding of themselves as religions of peace. And we've talked about some of the ways uh, peace is not where we are. But I'd like to know, and, and you, Omar, you really go into this in the book. You really reflect on this. What, what would it mean, and what does it mean to you? That, that, that the empty phrase doesn't do it. Um, but it can be meaningful. So what, what does it mean for you, and how does it manifest? Well, I'm, I'm still, that Islam is a religion of peace. Well, I'm, I'm still uh, discovering it. I, I do realize it, it requires um, more than just individual conviction. It actually requires uh, a political conviction. It requires direction of financial resources, these choices that people can make. Uh, it requires, strangely, even regulation, um, bureaucracies, um, you know, either taking apart bureaucracies or putting, putting them together. And... Uh, yeah, what, what I try to do in, in my book, in a very sort of short manner, is to uh, almost poke fun at the idea that we're a religion of peace, and yet we're at war with ourselves and everybody else. Um, you know, I also think a little about the patriarchal systems that we have in place. Uh, I spent a bit of time speaking to, um, well, I spent a bit of time in Jordan with very religious uh, people, very, very devout. And, you know, you speak to the head of the family, and he was fine with the, the system. And, you know, Islam is a fantastic thing, and we're, we're all about family. Family, family values, and, and you speak to the women, and they're like, I can't wait to get out of here. And so I began to think, well, maybe, maybe this whole idea of family values is just coming from one perspective, and in fact, there's a tremendous amount of violence taking place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's emotional violence, it's psychological violence. Uh, and, and so when I thought, you know, when you think about peace and you think about you know, extremism and terrorism, there's also the, the, the micro-terrorism, the micro-extremism, mm-hmm. the micro-violence that mm-hmm. takes place within all of these homes. So that's where I really think we need to make, make some changes so that we're not so uh, used to the violence that happens in our everyday life that we can then take it out into the, the broader world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am very, very optimistic, though, given the changes in the in political environment uh, in, in the Gulf states and the Middle East today. Um, but, yeah, okay, in the next hundred years we may make some progress. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, one, one of my friends and um, Richard Rohr, uh, Father Richard Rohr, he says the the best practice or the best critique of what's wrong is the practice of something better. And there are lots of versions of Christianity that to me, they don't look a lot like Jesus. I mean, it was Gandhi that said, they asked him about Christianity. He said, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like him. <laughs> so I see that. And, and I, I think one of the questions becomes, whatever our faith is, as we're worshiping God, is it making us more loving? Is it making us more life-giving? And, and because I, I think we end up um, replicating the God that we worship. And so sometimes what's so important is what is the character of the God that we are uh, adoring and loving and who is hopefully changing us. And, um, and so, you know, in, in communities, sometimes you get a lot of donations and you end up, uh, you know, before you drink milk, you want to smell it, you know, have it pass the sniff test. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of, Christianity doesn't pass the sniff test. It doesn't smell like Jesus. It doesn't feel like love. And, and for a lot of our face, I think that's the question is, does it smell like love? Um, because no matter what our theology is, if, if at the end of the day, it doesn't help us love more deeply, then I wonder if we're really leaning into the God who, in, in my faith tradition, says God is love. No one has seen God. But if we love one another, we see God present among us. And so that's, that's really um, what, what faith should do to us, I think. And, and, uh, and when we see distortions of our faith, that's the power of Muslims that are speaking against ISIS in extremist forms and risking their lives doing that. And I feel the same duty to um, try to sing a better song than some of the toxic Christianity that has distorted my faith. And there's plenty of hateful versions of Christianity that don't look much like Jesus. In fact, I think one of the biggest obstacles to Jesus has been Christians who have distorted that faith for hatred rather than for love. So just in closing, I want to ask each of you, if I just ask you today, this week, um, how would you start to answer this question, you know, right now, what makes you despair and what is give, where are you finding hope? Well, I can start by saying this, you know, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. So the same people that led me to Jesus have led us to Trump. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a reason to despair, I think. But, but I, I don't want to stay there because I, I think that it's, it's also been said that, um, you know, Trump's a symptom of something much deeper. And, and Trump didn't change America. He just revealed America. I don't think that cha Trump changed white evangelicalism, but he surely revealed it. And what we've seen are some of the, the deep roots of that that are so problematic um, and so unlike Jesus and the, the values. And, and like when I read the Beatitudes of Jesus, blessed are the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers are the children of God. These are the things he said. And I look at our current administration and state of our country and I'm deeply troubled. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's not that I'm... Uh, 
uh, anti-Trump as much as pro-Jesus, and my love for Jesus <laughs> makes me question so much of our, 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 our country right now. Um, but I'm hopeful because I see a whole generation that's rising up, and I think that you know, water doesn't boil one big bubble. It, it begins to steam, and it begins to bubble up, and I see that happening all over our, our country right now. Um, and, and people of many different faiths, many different intersections of justice, joining hands and saying, uh, none of us are free until all of us are free. And, and we, we uh, even though we, we may find ourselves at odds with some of the people of our own faith, we will find ourselves joining hands with people of folks of other faith that share in common this vision of love and justice and freedom for everyone. So in, in uh, response, I've got to be really brief. Uh, I despair at the state of the Arab world. Uh, I think the state of the Arab world has an, an, obviously a tremendous effect on global Islam. Um, uh, I am hopeful because my sabbatical ends in September, so I'll be back to work. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll take care of it. Of course. <laughs> I... Um... You know, I, I don't know why. Why is this event taking me back to the early days of the show? But it is. Um, there was this question when I started talking about speaking about this, this subject, this aspect of the human enterprise. Uh, there was a question about whether that could be relevant to the world. And, and whether if people did have religious lives, public radio listeners, if they didn't just want to keep it private. We're arguably in a more tumultuous moment now than we were then. Um, and yet I feel like this conversation, well, first of all, I feel like everything you've been doing in this city for the last year and have poised yourself to keep doing, and this conversation tonight is such a witness that while uh, the institutions of religion, like all of our institutions, are in flux now, Every, all of them are being remade, um, the, this voice from deep inside religious tradition, the insights of theology, the wisdom that comes from this relationship with text, uh, over millennia, with, with the conversation across generations that is at the heart of our traditions, uh, is very, is profoundly, you know, relevant is not a big enough word. So I'm really grateful for this demonstration of that. And, um, and again, grateful to all of you for creating this space for us to have this vivid reminder. Um, thank you for having on being in Philadelphia, and thank you, Shane and Omar. Thank you.